Amen. Thank you, choir. Forever and ever. Amen. Forever. It's not an easy concept for us to wrap our brains around eternity. What does forevermore look like? What does forever mean? What does forever do to our psyches? That's what we're going to talk about today in our sermon as we finish up our series on Behold the Lamb. You know there's only four Sundays in Advent. We added a fifth one here. We left the, the lights up. and yeah, Technically, it's still Christmas. Christmas started on December 25th and goes till January 6th. So very appropriate to have the greenery and the lights up still as well. We had a beautiful wedding in here yesterday, and they sure appreciated the, the greenery and the decorations. But as we finish out 2017, I, I hope that you find yourself here today having gratitude in your heart for the ways that you've grown and, and for the change that's come in, in the last year of your life and that you've followed the Lamb more closely in 2017. One of my favorite things to do since seminary, I had a professor who, who mentioned they did this and I've done it ever since then, is to list the nine fruits of the Spirit. Just write them down on a sheet of paper and then evaluate yourself and say, have I grown in, in the ways that I love? Have I grown in, in peace, in joy, in patience? Have I grown in kindness, goodness, in faithfulness, in, in gentleness, in self-control? Yikes, not in Nashville traffic. It's a, it's a hard but, but really important test to see if you're becoming more and more the person that God created you to be as you follow the Lamb and walk that journey of discipleship across your life. 2017 has been an amazing year for me personally and for my family, filled with some pretty major events. I got a new job. We moved to Nashville. We got a new school for our kids. We've got new neighbors and all that goes along with that. I got the amazing privilege of baptizing some incredible folks, including my own son, Jude. I've got also the, the privilege of marrying off Jared and Amy. I think y'all are the originals, as, as Jared says. Jeremy and Marissa, shortly after that, Trey and Anna, just this month, and then last night, Danielle and Wesley. I also had the honor this year of, of helping to conduct several funerals for saints who have gone on before us, who, on whose shoulders we stand now. And though funerals are, are nowhere near as fun as weddings to conduct, I think they're just as important. I think funerals are every bit as important as, as weddings. And, for us to focus on because when someone dies, it helps shift our perspective from what is temporal and earthly to that which is eternal. I think we get caught up in, in worldly matters so much, and, and in the end, these, these worldly things don't really matter. They're insignificant in the scope of eternity. Funerals are about the stuff that matters. Salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone that leads to glory in eternity, right? I think funerals show us that we celebrate a life of discipleship spent following the Lamb. That's what funerals help us do, and the book of Revelation also does this for us. It helps us know where all of this stuff is going, where we're headed. Revelation reminds us of the eternal forces of evil that have been marching relentlessly against this kingdom ever since Adam and Eve plunged the cosmos into death and decay and darkness. 
and, and brought sin into what was initially a very good world, a very good creation. Revelation tells us that these forces are going to be defeated in the end, that they don't have the final word. Today we get to look at the end of the Bible, the very last part of Revelation. This is the final resolution of the story of everything ever. And it really couldn't be better timing, could it? The last words of the last book of the Bible on the last day of 2017. It's entirely appropriate that we check out what the last part of Revelation says today. You may remember from English class that <coughs> the end of a story in, in the dramatic structure, the, the resolution of a story is called the, the French word, the, the denouement, right? The denouement. It, it literally means the untying of the knot. Revelation actually tells us here in the passage that we'll look at today that all the tension and all the pain and all the longing and all the evil and injustice and suffering in this world will be unknotted in the end. It will be resolved according to God's plans. This is one of my favorite parts of the Bible, and I think it's, it's one that most people haven't really read or understood because they're scared of it or I don't know. But Revelation is the last word of Scripture. And today we look at the last word of the last word. That's an important thing, right? It's the last word. It's the final authoritative statement, not just on the Bible, but on history. The Revelation of St. John contains God Almighty's final word on everything ever. We would do well then to pay attention, right? Especially to the last words of the last word. I love reading lists of famous last words. It matters, right? The, the last thing someone says, whether it's someone you know, confessing something or maybe some, it gives you a little insight to what their last will and testament may be, whatever it may be, last words matter. And so does the last word of Scripture. I wish we had time to go through the last four chapters of Revelation this morning, but I really want to just focus on two key passages from the end of Revelation. And, and I want to help us this morning to gain an eternal perspective. You know, Jonathan Edwards, who Gary quoted this morning in, in, in Sunday school, he, he prayed, Oh Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Trey's referenced that before. It's such a wonderful prayer to ask God to give us an eternal perspective so that we would quit wasting our lives on stuff that doesn't matter in the end. So before we dive into these texts, let's just set up how this whole book functions real quickly. St. John, the apostle, receives this incredible revelation, this vision, while he's caught up in the Holy Spirit on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, the resurrection day. When he's an old man, at this point in his life, he's been exiled off to the island of Patmos where he's a political prisoner from the Roman Empire. He's been stirring up too much trouble for the Romans, so they've sent him away to Patmos. And, and he, what he sees is the resurrected Lord Jesus in all of his glory. And he, he sees this amazing vision of Christ, and Christ tells John, write down what you see. And he first gives him seven letters to give to seven different churches that are scattered throughout Asia Minor. And then he takes John after those letters in chapter 2 and 3. In chapter 4, he takes John through the open door of heaven. And he pulls back the veil 
on what's really happening in the heavens, in the cosmos, the, 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 the center of what is authority for all of creation. And over the next 15 chapters, John sees that Christ is gradually defending His church. He's present with His church and He's defeating the enemies of the church, which is His bride. John sees the, the throne room of heaven. He sees in chapters 4 and 5 the, the total worship, the complete praise that is being given to the Lamb and to Holy God on the throne. And the Lamb receives the scroll from God and He proceeds to open the seven seals on the, the scroll. And as He does so, the, the judgments like the four horsemen of the apocalypse are, are released upon the earth as it all moves towards the denouement, as it all moves towards the resolution. The, the seven angels after the seven seals blow trumpets, and each time they blow a trumpet, there's another judgment, another thing that happens as God's plan unfolds for the end times. And over and over again, we see that this is building towards a climactic finish. And in several places in Revelation, we see that final battle take place. You know, Revelation is not meant to be sequential. It's not meant to give us a checklist of how God's going to do things in the end. That would be pointless. Why would God want us to have a checklist, right? The point is to be encouraged to follow the Lamb more faithfully because we know where this is headed. Have you ever DVR'd a, a big football game or a big... You know, uh, you know, golf match or something, and, and you, you knew who the winner was, it helps you not be so stressed as you enjoy the sport. You don't have to worry about the outcome. We don't have to worry about the outcome of the history of everything ever because we know where this is headed. So this climactic finish is, is known as Armageddon, right? And over and over again, we, we see it played out. It's meant Remember, this book is supposed to, to engage our praying imaginations. We're, we're not supposed to read it like a textbook. We're supposed to read it with our hearts wide open, with our minds trying to picture what's going on, to in, in, prayerfully read it. Ask God, show me, O oh Lord, what you would have me to see in this holy, sacred text. And we know that in chapter 6, we read last week, that when, when Armageddon happens, it was the, the sixth seal on the, the lamb, uh, the scroll that was, was opened. We see how the stars will fall out of the sky on that day. The heavenly bodies will no longer function like they have been functioning, and the sky itself will be rolled back as a scroll. And now we skip to chapter 20. Here at the end, that day is finally here. Again, it's, it's Armageddon, and we see how, how John is, is learning more and more about what will happen on that great day of judgment. All the forces, starting in verse 7, all the forces of, of evil and, and Satan and his armies will come and wage one final battle. That, that battle, again, is, is shown throughout Revelation. Back in chapter 16, John sees that that battle will happen at a place called Armageddon, the mountain of Megiddo. But this war is not fought with weapons of destruction. It's not like these angel armies of heaven come with their swords and they you know, fight with the, the Satan's minions and they have this big Lord of the Rings type battle. That's not what happens <coughs> according to Scripture. 
You, you may have envisioned it as this cosmic clash where there's an actual battle, but it's over before it begins. Fire falls immediately from heaven and consumes Satan and his armies like that. Satan is vanquished before the battle even begins. So after evil has been judged and defeated forever, there's a great judgment on humanity. Judgment is not an easy or attractive topic to talk about in our world today, but I think it's one that the Bible is clear on. And I, I almost avoided this passage completely. I told Morgan, I don't think I'm going to do that passage. I think I'm just going to skip to the really happy, good stuff. But I, I felt like the Lord is leading us to dive into this today. So let's stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's Word. Revelation chapter 20, as I read verses 11 through 15. The end of the story. Then I, John, saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. It's not an easy passage, is it? But it's an important one. Just like funerals aren't easy to go to, they're important. They matter. This is what Christians have always believed will happen on the last day of this earth. Everyone who ever lived on the planet will somehow be gathered before the throne. And, and books will be opened, it says there, in, in God's presence. And they're not actual books. These are reminders that God's memory does not fail. That God is omniscient. That He sees all. That He knows all. And He does not forget. So we know that God knows each living person and how they've lived their lives. What they spent their lives chasing after. What they loved more than anything. What they worshipped. What they treasured at their core. We're just saying, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness that is God's commandment, not just for his own selfish sake, but for our flourishing as well. We must believe that. We know that God knows all these things, so the judgment happens quickly. There's no arguments from attorneys who are defending the, the case of the wicked. Justice is served. There's no jury. Evil is destroyed once and for all, completely, eternally. And, and think about this for a second. It says here that death itself dies. The second death. That death itself dies at the end. That hell itself is sent to hell. Nothing will ever die again after this day because there will be no more death. No one will face the judgment of hell again after this point either. I think death is the worst thing in the world. I do. And it's everywhere in our world. I think we're haunted by death everywhere we go. 
Death has pervaded our entire world because sin pervaded it first. You see, the Bible shows us clearly that death is the power of sin. Death is the penalty for sin. Sin always ends in death somehow. It always destroys what is life-giving, what is good, what is flourishing. Sin is anti-flourishing. It is decay. It is death. It is darkness. When Jesus rose from the dead that first Easter morning, it was a preview of this day to come, the last day. The resurrection of Christ is the, the basis, the foundation for the final judgment that will take place when Christ returns. Because Jesus defeated death on Easter, we can stand before the throne not fearing death. We know that death and evil and sin has all been judged ultimately because Christ rose from the dead. You know, the Apostle Paul mocks death in 1 Corinthians. I love it. I, I kind of have a thing for making fun of people. It's, it's, I'm working on it. New Year's resolution maybe. But I love making fun of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55, he's quoting from the prophets Isaiah and Hosea. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? You're pathetic. You got nothing, death. We can laugh in its face. Christians may die once, yes, but they do not die the second death. The Lamb's Book of Life, that's the full title. The Lamb's Book of Life contains the names of the children of God who have been adopted into God's family through the sacrifice, the redemption that's offered through Christ Jesus. The first death is only temporary for everyone, it says here. There will be a day when all will stand before the throne. You may be thinking, hey, great, Nathan, you, you preached on the four horsemen of the apocalypse on Christmas Eve, and now you're going to close the year out with fire and brimstone. Way to go. This is really attractive. This is really going to help us grow the church. Well, I, I think that obviously eternal torment and the lake of fire may not be popular subjects as far as preaching goes, but I agree with C.S. Lewis who wrote almost 80 years ago, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But, he goes on to say, it has the full support of Scripture and of our Lord's own words. Jesus did speak about hell a lot. And I would strive not to shy away from the topics that Jesus didn't shy away from. I think that's a healthy way to go. I believe hell is real. Orthodox Christians have always believed that hell is real. I do, of course, however, have many kind, intelligent friends who profess to be believers in Christ who do not ascribe to a doctrine of hell. I know most of us have heard, if you've grown up in church, chances are you've heard some religious person use the doctrine of hell to try to scare people into heaven. That's horrible. It's wrong, always. Jesus never did that. That was not what Jesus did. Jesus spoke often of hell to religious people like you and me to remind them that those who consider themselves to be insiders will probably end up as outsiders. And that there will be a lot of outsiders 
who end up surprising the so-called insiders. Yikes. Religious people hated to hear that. And, and I think it's still hard for me to hear that. You know, I pray I never assume that I'm an insider because I'm a preacher or because my dad was a preacher or because I grew up in the South or I went to church every Sunday or I tithed or I taught a Sunday school class or I was a deacon or I had the, the right family or I volunteered at a homeless shelter. None of that makes us insiders. In fact, it's all worthless compared to the power of knowing Christ and being adopted as a child of God. To be found in Him. To trust fully in His ability to make us right before holy God, knowing that we are completely unable on our own to do so. Doug Webster says this, the gospel is simple, that those who are found in Christ will be saved. And only those found in Christ. He says we cherish the dream of everyone living happily ever after. Hell violates our utopian instincts. But the living triune God is not like us. And we cannot fathom perfect love and perfect justice. We either come to Him by way of mercy and love or we don't come at all. We either accept His free gift of grace and respond to the Christ light that we have, or we don't. The mystery of salvation and judgment may be stated that clearly, that simply. Either we respond to Christ's light or we don't. And, and Webster is a Presbyterian. He's a professor at my divinity school at, at Beeson. And here he is talking about accepting the free gift of grace that's offered through Christ Jesus. The, the most important decision we can ever make is how we respond to that free gift of grace that's offered to us. When my son became a Christian and, and came forward to profess his faith publicly in Christ, he, he stood here and you all, it was 12.45 before we got out of here because of the long line that wanted to greet him. And Deb Sherman came and knelt down right in front of him and said, this is the most important decision you can ever make. And when I was seven years old, I came down the same aisle, knelt right where you are, and, and some godly saint knelt down before me and told me this is the most important decision you can ever make. And it is, because it has eternal consequences, right? It may be old-fashioned to say it, but it's as true today as it ever was. And here's the last thing I'll say about hell, okay? Another quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from The Problem of Pain. I think we have it in our library. Great book. In the long run, he says, the answer to all of those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? Smoothing over every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? He has done so on Calvary. To, to forgive them? Are you asking God to forgive them? They won't receive forgiveness. They refuse it. Are you asking God to leave them alone? I'm afraid, alas, in the end, that is what He does. Okay, let's change gears. Let's end on a high note, okay? As hard as a passage as that may be to think about, this next one is probably my favorite in the whole Bible to talk about and to think about and to dream about. Revelation 21. Let's go to the very next verse. Verse 1. 
Then, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and were no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's an Advent text, isn't it? He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. He will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a tender gesture. As a parent, I've done that for my children. Wiped away their tears. God will do that for us. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne, not the one who will be seated, He who is seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You know, there's, there's one key question in life that I don't think most people spend any serious time or energy really deciding where they stand on this question. But they should. It's this. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? It really is an Advent question, isn't it? What are we waiting for? Are we actually headed towards some denouement, some resolution, or aren't we? Is, is life just hard and then you die? Is, is the best we could hope for just to, when we die, go to heaven and that's the end? Is that really what it's all about? You know, once you decide on where you stand on this question, where are we headed? What are we waiting for? You must then answer another serious question. What do we do in the meantime? Once you determine the first question, where are we headed? What are we waiting for? Then you have to answer the question, what do we do in the meantime? And the answer to the first question determines the answer to the second, right? Once you establish what it is that we're waiting for, then it determines how you then shall live your life. So be honest with yourself today. What do you believe really happens when we die? Well, we're in church. Most of us would probably say something like, you go to heaven. Okay, great. Then what? Float around on a cloud playing a harp forever? That sounds horrible. Don't get me wrong, I, I, harps are cool. I think they're neat, it's hard to play. But, but floating around playing one forever sounds horrible. It sounds like torment. I don't want a part of that. And our, if our future expectation is that we will die and just go to heaven and kind of float away and that's the end, then what's the point? If, if that's all there is, then what is our hope? What is our, our, our expectation that justice can be done? When will all the wrongs be made right? When will all the brokenness be made whole? That's what God's justice means, by the way. To correct things. If, if heaven is all there is, and it's this kind of ethereal place where good people float around, then the best we could hope for is to escape this cruel world. Theologians call that escape theology, and it's very dangerous. It's 
what led over 900 people in Jonestown, in Guyana, to drink the Kool-Aid, and the greatest single loss of American life until 9-11 at one time. There is no real hope in that kind of thinking. If, if this whole world, if the whole creation is not headed towards something redeeming, then our salvation is severely lacking. It's not holy salvation. Because salvation means that all the wrongs will be made right. A holistic view of salvation must mean a total reversal of the curse. It must mean complete redemption. It must mean utter restoration. It must mean absolute renewal. It must mean perfect recreation and unmitigated reconciliation of all things back to God just as He intended. But our, our culture is just as confused about heaven as we are about hell. Even though 80% of Americans claim to be Christians, or 72 or whatever it was, Gary, I still don't think we have a clue about heaven. In 1999, Maria Shriver, the, then she was the wife of the, the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and she's the niece of John F. Kennedy. She wrote a deeply theological book for kids. And to my knowledge, she has no formal theological training or experience. But it's called, What's Heaven? Wow, that's a, that's a tough topic to take on. What's, what's heaven? The back cover has this description. Death eventually touches every family. In this treasure of a book, for people of all faiths, what? Do people of all faiths believe the same thing about heaven? Of course not. Sorry. It, this book, of, for people of all faiths, is a starting point for parents who must talk about this difficult topic with their children. Heaven shouldn't be difficult for us to talk about. It should be a joy. It should be something exciting to talk about every day. We're awaiting the redemption of all things. Sorry. What should parents say when a loved one dies? Tell them the truth. That's where I'd start. How do they explain it while reassuring children? Heaven is a difficult subject. No, it's not. That always comes up at tough times. And Maria Shriver, why does it only come up at tough times? Maria Shriver has written a very special book precisely for these stressful moments. Shriver taught her family and will help teach yours how to come together, feel closer to one another, in a lie, feel closer to one another, and experience peace. By believing this myth, made-up story that we tell ourselves to feel better, no thanks. I'm sure Ms. Shriver's a really nice lady. She's done a lot of great things. Sorry, I don't mean to disparage her. That's not helpful. But this book is a story about a little girl whose great-grandmother passes away, and she, she asks her mom, you know, where's great-grandmother? And mom says, well, she's in heaven. The mom's just kind of making it up, you know. And the girl says, what's heaven? And the mom tells her daughter, heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. At night, you can sit next to the stars, which are the brightest of anywhere in the universe. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. What? That's works righteousness. That's not the gospel. When your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. What? Where is that in scripture? 
It's, it's a made-up fiction meant to help our kids feel better. But does it really help them feel better? Do, do fictions really give us any hope? No. It has to be true in order for it to really make me feel better. I don't want to live a lie. It's not going to give me any kind of consolation or my kids. And we know it's made up because it's unbiblical. Most of our current ideas on heaven come more from Plato, this idea that spirit is good and matter is bad. That was Plato, not the Bible. The new creation is very physical. The, the images used for it are earth and dirt and wine, stuff like that. There'll be work in the new creation, but not toil that's different. It'll be meaningful, productive labor in which you feel satisfied completely. We know that because the Bible says those things. And, and here's the crazy thing. This may sound controversial, but it shouldn't be. Where will we spend eternity? Heaven? That's not what the Bible says. Don't get, don't get lost yet, okay? It, it says here clearly in verse 1 that heaven and earth had just passed away. Heaven, according to the Bible, is temporary. Now, yes, if you die today, if you're a believer in Christ and you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and your name is in the book of life, then you are present with the Lord. I believe that. Jesus told the thief on the cross, you'll be with me today in paradise. Heaven, right? That, I believe that with all my heart. But it's not our final destination. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus said that. It may sound strange, but Jewish people have always believed in, in two parts to history. The present age, which is the old heaven and old earth, and the age to come, which is the new heaven and the new earth. Where do they get that idea? The Bible. It teaches this clearly. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So when does it change? When does it become the age to come? Well, it's already started. We live in the now but not yet. Ever since Jesus came into our world at the first advent, lived among us, then died a sacrificial death and rose again, this age has been initiated. And you see that the bookends of biblical theology are creation and new creation. That's the beginning and the end of the story. Genesis 1 and 2 is about the first creation. Revelation 21 22 are about the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth. And the passage we just read describes the new creation. And that is our hope, that all things will be made new. We all know we live in a fallen world, right? Romans 8, 21 says, creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You know, we, we read the Great Commission from Matthew 28 today, Gary, but there's another Great Commission in, in Mark chapter 16. At the end of Mark, Jesus says to his disciples that all creation needs the gospel. He said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation because it's broken and it's fallen and it's messed up. The new creation must be our hope. It's the only doctrine that completes the whole biblical meta-narrative. Justice will be done. Wrongs will be put right. If we really believe these things about heaven and hell, 
then it greatly affects how we live now. It must. It's the answer to the question, what do we do in the meantime? If you truly hold these doctrines to be deeper reality than what we can just see, what the world says is real, that we're not just going to leave this terrible place and one glad morning fly away, but that God is making it new and will finish that work someday. And that only those who have responded to the light of Christ in their lives will be a part of it. Then it will change your life forever. How then shall we live while we wait? Well, Paul gave young Titus some good advice in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, the first advent, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let us live disciplined, godly, selfless lives while we wait for our blessed hope, the second advent of Jesus Christ and the ushering in of the new creation. We should also have an urgency about our lives. Our time is short, right? Our lives are but a mist, James says, that it's here for a little while, then it's gone. One day, everyone will be held accountable for what they did in this brief time that we had. I, I believe deep in my soul that there will be a great reckoning where Jesus returns and heaven and earth pass away and a new creation is made, a new heaven, a new earth. Are you ready for the reckoning? Do you long for the reckoning? The entire book of Revelation points us toward what really matters in the end. We're encouraged to follow the Lamb more closely because we know that evil will not win. Though it seems so strong, it is not the victor. One day we're going to reign victoriously with the Lamb who was slain but has now defeated all of His enemies and they're a footstool before His throne. We're going to reign over a whole new creation where there will be no more tears, no more death, no more suffering. I'm reminded often of the old poem that says, One life to live will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. I think that's true. I don't want to waste my life or my time here. Let us have an eternal perspective. Let us live godly lives in the meantime. And let us live with the urgency of heaven and hell as we boldly move into 2018. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, for giving us a revelation of how you were going to finish the work of redeeming all things back unto yourself when Christ returns and ushers in this new creation. And our world as we know it passes away and heaven itself passes away. God, I thank you for the hope we have that justice will be served. Except for us, God, you've shown us grace. You don't treat us according to our sins, but you've covered over them by the blood of the Lamb. And you've written our names in the book of life. God, I pray that 
we would have an urgency about the brief time that we have on this earth. That we would live our life knowing it will t- soon be past. And only what's done for you and your kingdom will last. Help us to seek you first in 2018. To let the things that matter guide us and let the things that don't matter fall away. Help us to advance your kingdom on this earth while we have time. May we live with the reality of heaven and hell always stamped before us. God, we we thank you for your grace for the way your perfect love and your perfect justice meet somehow on the last day of judgment. And they met perfectly at the cross. And for that, God, we give you thanks and praise. We commit ourselves anew to you in 2018 as we walk into whatever future you have for us boldly, knowing that you will redeem all things back into yourself eventually. We love you. We pray this all in your high and your holy name. Amen. Our God is holy. We're going to stand and sing a hymn of response. Holy, holy, holy. I encourage you, if you've never never accepted Christ as Lord, if you've never (coughs) received the free gift that he offers you, don't waste another second of your life. Come and, and give all you have, all you are, all your future to Jesus Christ as Lord of your soul and of your life. If you're not a part of Woodmont Baptist Church and you feel like the Lord is leading you to become a part of our church family, and do life with us here in 2018. We'd love to talk with you about being a church member here as well. This is a time of invitation. Don't leave this place without responding to whatever the Spirit is telling you in your heart today. Let's stand and sing, holy, holy, holy.